Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, yesterday, we talked about how stories shape us, how God created us in His image, and we were made for stories more than anything else. And those, uh, it's those stories that shape us more than like rules and lessons and, and instruction and that sort of thing. We talked about how the Bible is meant to shape us and how God is the ultimate storyteller. But today what I want to talk about is the fact that there is another master storyteller out there. He shows up in the garden, Genesis 3, and he tells a story to Adam and Eve that's not true. And they believe it. And they eat the fruit that God told them not to eat. And all creation is broken and fallen and cursed because of that lie. And Satan is continuing to tell us these lies day in and day out. And the world is throwing these lies at us. And they're the lies that are so easy for us to believe if we are not actually paying attention. And so I want to walk through some of those today uh, and, and talk about some of that. But first off, turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. Hey guys, I know that y'all are probably tired. Yesterday was your first full day. Wednesday's hump day. And... Um, you probably have another good hike ahead of you, and you're also probably tired because you just did an elective class, and I know that, so I appreciate you being here and being so attentive even right now. I promise I'm going to tell lots of stories today, and we'll, we'll move through this thing, all right? I have some good ones I'm excited about. First Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all honor and glory. And so often we give that honor and glory to false gods and false idols. And that all starts from us believing the false stories that Satan and the world is throwing at us. So would you give us wisdom and would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we look into your word and as we look and examine some of these false stories. And, and would you help us to distinguish between the false narratives and the true narratives, the false stories that lead us astray and the true stories that echo the story of the gospel, the story of redemption. Help us to see the difference between those two. And God, give me words, because my own words by themselves will fall absolutely flat. They are, they are worthless without your spirit coming and changing us. And so I pray that you would do that right now. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, a few years ago, there were these two guys named Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn who wanted to run an experiment because they had seen that a recent study had shown that customers are 63% more likely to buy a product due to a testimonial. In other words, if the product has a story, a testimonial attached to it, customers are 63% more likely to buy that product. So these two guys, Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn, ran this experiment. They went out and they bought a bunch of random knickknacks from thrift stores and antique shops and the, the rule that they had was the knickknacks can't, can't be useful at all. They have to be like 
you know, uh, a wooden horse you'd put on a mantle or like a garden gnome or so, something that would actually serve no like purpose. You can't, it's not a utensil, something you could use. Just random antique knickknacks. They spent a total of $129 on hundreds of objects. All right, so they were very cheap. And then they hired out over 200 creative writers to come and attach false stories to each object. Stories like, like uh, okay, like my mom and I used to till the garden, and one day the hoe came and, and, and uh, smashed the garden gnome, and we spent all night gluing it back together, and we put it back out, and every time I look at it, it's this sweet memory of what my mom and I went through. Like, they would give these sentimental or funny stories attached to each object, and then they sold them on eBay with the story attached to it. And when they spent $129 on all these objects, they turned a profit of over $8,000. Yo! <laughs> By selling false stories. The point is this. The world, the world is not trying to sell you stuff. The world is trying to sell you stories. All right? The world is trying to sell you stories, and many of those stories are false. And, it's, it, and oftentimes, it's the false stories that can move us the most. And so I want to dive in this morning to some false stories that actually shape us and mold us in ways that aren't good. So we're going to walk through these together. Number one, the false narrative, the false story I want to talk about first is listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. It's actually a song titled Listen to Your Heart. It's a good one. I like that song. But that's a lie, okay? That story's false. I... I'm going to pick on Disney a little bit this morning. I, I'm, so my kids love this movie called Moana, and I like it too. It's a great movie. There's lots to really like about it. The music's awesome. Uh, it's a fun movie. It, it, in fact, it, this is kind of a side lesson I want you to pick up on. It, a lot of these like, stories that I'm picking on, they're not black and white. Okay, It's not like you, you know, one thing can make it like, unwatchable. I want you to actually learn to have wisdom as you're like consuming things and entertainment to see that like you can you can take a story and find the good parts and the bad parts in the same story okay because there there's there's a lot of gray in there uh, and so just like there's a lot of good in Moana there's a lot of, of bad and and it starts with this Moana is this this little girl who lives in some island out in the Pacific Ocean and her family and her community is there on the island her father's the chief her father wants her to grow up and be the chief and to take on that responsibility and to love her community well. But Moana has this adventurous spirit and she wants to go out beyond the reef and sail the ocean because none of her people are allowed to go beyond the reef. She wants to have these experiences and this adventure because that's where her heart is leading her. And so she's torn between these two. In fact, in one of the songs she says, I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? So she's listening to this voice inside of her that's telling her to go beyond the reef when her father and her community are telling her, I think it's more wise for you to stay here and serve your community and love your family well. And she's torn. She doesn't know what to do. And in comes the grandmother who's kind of like, the kooky old wise expert who's like presented as kind of an outcast, but deep down inside, like you know that she's the voice of truth in the movie, or supposed to be. And she sings this song to Moana. You are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember you may hear a voice inside. 
And when that voice starts to whisper, follow the farthest star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. That's a lie. (laughs) That voice inside of you is not who you are. But that's what Disney wants you to believe, okay? That's what the world wants you to believe. That that voice that you're listening to, that voice that is like supposed to be guiding you, that, that all you really have to do is, is listen to your heart and feel, you know, if you feel it in your gut, that's, like, that's got to be the answer. That's the way I'm, I'm going to go. Uh, you know, it, 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 I, I just want to do what feels right to me. If that's what we chase after. We chase after our own hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me say that again. The heart is deceitful above everything. There's nothing more deceitful than your own heart, and your heart is desperately sick. How can you understand it? That's what, that's what the Bible says about your heart. So what in the world makes us think that, oh, if I just listen to my heart, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, that's the way I should go. Your heart is sick, and it's sick because of the fall, because of the curse of sin, and it has ruined us from the inside out, and we need a Savior to cleanse us from the inside out. And so that's why God gave us His Word. That's why He gave us His story. And He's saying, follow this story. Don't follow your heart. Listen to this story. Don't listen to your heart. And let this story shape your heart. Listen to your heart is one of the worst lies you could hear. Second lie of our culture. You are your own hero. Culture wants you to believe the lie that you are your own hero. Again, I said I'm picking on Disney. There's another show that my kids watch called The Lion Guard. It's kind of a spinoff of The Lion King. And... There's lots to like about that, okay? It's, it's, there's plenty that's great about it and plenty that's not. There's this hippo on there named Beshti who is helping this little elephant who's scared. The elephant's like doubting itself and is not sure where it fits in in the world. And Beshti sings this song and says this, No need to worry. Hold your head up with pride. Believe in yourself. There's no reason to hide. It's there within you, the hero inside. That's also a lie, okay? That's not true. And, and I'm not trying to bash Disney. There's plenty uh, that I love about Disney. They're telling very relevant stories. But because their stories are so relevant, you need to be aware of the false stories that are being like, pushed in through some of these movies and shows that we see. Um, let me give you an example of why we can't be our own heroes. I'll tell you a story about something that happened to me. About a year and a half ago, I started working for RYM. And my first day on the job, we were doing a youth leader training camp in, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee at a camp called Camp Widgie Wagon. And, um, and so my first task on the job was to go to the grocery store and buy two one-gallon buckets of ice cream, bring it back and put it in the freezer. And I was like, I think I can handle that. All right. Doesn't sound too hard. So I go buy the ice cream, bring it back. Nobody else has really showed up at this point. And so the dining hall's empty. I walk in, and I go back to the kitchen. It's this big industrial-sized kitchen, and all the lights are out. But there's music playing somewhere in the back. And so I walk in, and I go, hello? No answer. Hello? So I go back to the wall, and I'm holding the ice cream. I'm like fiddling around with my elbow, and I find a light switch. I get the light on. And there in the back of the room 
is this guy just standing there staring at me. <laughs> Wasn't answering me. He was just staring at me in the dark. Red flags should have gone off at that point, but I just went, oh, uh, hey, um, I need to uh, put this ice cream somewhere. And he says, after staring at me for another awkward five seconds, you can put it in my freezer. And he turns and starts walking. <laughs> Your freezer? You own this place? Okay, I guess I'll follow this guy to his own personal freezer that he has back in the back of this industrial-sized kitchen. So we walk through several dark corridors. We go through a walk-in refrigerator that has, you know, shelves lining the walls with food and things on it. And through the refrigerator, there's another door that leads to the walk-in freezer. It's maybe 10 feet by 10 feet, big enough to walk in, but not super huge. There's shelves lining the walls, but there's an empty spot in the back corner. And he says, you can put your ice cream back there. So I walk over there, put the first gallon up, bend down, grab the second gallon, put it up, turn around. The door is closed and the guy is gone. Now, in my head, I'm actually kind of laughing a little bit because I'm thinking, okay, this is real life. Like, if this were a horror movie, yeah, like, he'd be locking me in the freezer to kill me. But this isn't a horror movie. This is, this is real life. And in my head, I'm going, it would be hilarious if the door was locked, though. And so I walk over. I pull on the handle, and it doesn't budge. And then it dawns on me. He locked me in the freezer. <laughs> Panic begins to set in. But I, I gather myself and realize, wait, I have a phone in my pocket. I'm going to pull out the phone. I'm going to call my boss. I'm going to say, get over here to the kitchen. Let me out of the freezer. Arrest that man. And then we can just go about our day. I pull my phone out. In the top left corner, it reads, no service. Of course, I don't have service. I'm in an airtight metal container in the middle of nowhere. I have no service on my phone. That's when the panic really starts to set in. And I'm thinking, I have no way of communicating with anybody. This door won't open. I'm going to die in here. Like, this is how I go? Like, of all the ways that I thought my life would come to an end, they're going to find my cold, lifeless body clutching a half-eaten gallon of ice cream in the back corner of a walk-in freezer at Camp Wizzywagon. Because the last thing I'm going to do before I freeze to death is eat as much ice cream as possible. I was freaking out. And the only thing I could think to do at that point was just come up and just start banging on the door. And I'm just going, help! Help me! Somebody help me! Let me out of here! And I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs. After a good minute or so of doing that, I finally hear something on the other side of the door, and I stop. Somebody's fiddling with the door handle. And I hear the of the vacuum seal release. This waft of warm air washes over me, and the door opens, and there standing before me is the guy who locked me in there. And I quickly stick my foot in the door so we can't close it again. And I said, dude, what are you doing? You locked me in the walk-in freezer. I've been pulling and pulling on the door and it wouldn't budge. And he looks at me and says, did you try pushing it? So it turns out the door to the walk-in freezer was a push and not a pull. And in my panic, I failed to try the only other option that was presented to me. Basically, I had two options pull or push. I chose to pull. When that didn't work, I said, that's it. I'm going to die in here. I'm done. When I think about that story, it makes me think, how in the world can anyone out there tell me that I can be my own hero when I can't even rescue myself from an unlocked freezer? Like, 
guys, this is what sin does to us. It actually makes us stupid, okay? We are so stupid, we can't save ourselves. We can't be our own heroes. We need a savior outside of us to come and rescue us. I needed the very guy who locked me in there to come and rescue me. Uh, One of the things, I, I talked a little bit about the Marvel Universe yesterday. One of the things I love about those movies is it actually tells a story that you need a hero outside of yourself and that hero will come and rescue you, oftentimes at great cost to themselves. Right? That's a beautiful story. That's a redemptive story. Okay, so uh, that's a story worth telling, that we are not our own heroes, that we need a hero outside of ourselves to come and rescue us. Because we cannot just pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and just move on and get through life rescuing ourselves. We need a Savior. Because our sin has left us dead. We need someone to bring us back to life. You cannot be your own hero. The third lie. Outward appearance is everything. I'll tell you another story. Um, When I first moved to Houston, I had a 2007 white Pontiac Grand Prix. And I was pretty proud of that car. But the apartment complex I lived in was pretty rough part of town and my car got broken into like three times in my first month living there and uh, somebody messed it up so bad that they like stripped the keyhole and so I couldn't stick my key in and unlock it anymore and there was only one keyhole on the driver's side not on the passenger side and then my clicker stopped working which I probably could have just gone and gotten a new battery for that but I was stupid and I didn't know how to be my own hero. So I just like decided, okay, like I just can't lock my door anymore. So everywhere I went, my door stayed unlocked. One night I went to Walmart. It's kind of late at night. Parking lot's fairly empty. I go inside to get my stuff. (laughs) You're already like freaking out over this door. Okay. So I walk out there. Guys, I'm a Walmart guy. Okay. What's so bad about Walmart? Walmart's great. Okay. So I'll go to Walmart. I get some stuff and I walk out. And uh, my car was sitting under like one of the, the lights in the parking lot. And I look up and there's this lady sitting in my car trying to crank the engine. My first thought was, oh, she's in the wrong car. She has a car like mine. Um, but then as I kind of standing there, maybe 20 yards away from her, I'm holding my bags. She looks up, makes eye contact with me and her eyes get wide and she starts to panic. She looks like a kid who just got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Like she looks like she's up to no good and she panics and immediately starts trying to crank the engine and i'm like oh my gosh she's stealing my car right in front of me so i drop my bags and i take off running and then i see her like fiddling with the door trying to lock it before i can get to her because you know of course my key doesn't work to get in and so i take off sprinting i get to the door i pull the handle and open it before she can lock it she reaches behind her and grabs a phone Pulls it out and says, stop her, I'll call the cops. And I said, you stop her, I'll call the cops. And she said, this is my car and you're ca- Oh, this is not my car. Oh no. And she realizes that she was in the wrong car. Turns out it was just a huge misunderstanding. I thought she was stealing my car. She thought I was coming to attack her in the middle of the night in the empty parking lot. Hilarious misunderstanding. We kind of giggled over it awkwardly for a little bit. She gets up and says, oh, that's my car, two aisles over. So she starts walking. I get in. All is well. But then I sit down and I realize my driver's seat has been scooted up like 10 inches. The steering wheel is lowered. The rear view mirror is adjusted and the side mirrors are all angled inwards. 
She did all this, and not once did it occur to her that maybe she was in the wrong car. And then I hear a knock at the window, and she's standing there, and she goes, I'm sorry, can I get my groceries out of your trunk? I had, like, a guitar and basketball shoes in there. Like, none of that tipped her off that she was in the wrong car. Here's the thing. We, we can get so – basically what she did was she walked up and said – White Pontiac Grand Prix, yeah, that's mine. And just completely ignored everything else on the inside that should have pointed her to the truth. Guys, that's what we do over and over again. We get so caught up on outward appearances, on what something looks like on the outside, that we completely ignore the things on the inside that should be pointing us towards the truth. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's talk about the selfie generation for a second, okay? CNN reported a couple years ago, 2017, 55% of plastic surgeons reported seeing patients who wanted to improve how they looked in selfies, and that's it. 55% of plastic surgeons reported seeing patients who came to him saying, I want you to change my appearance purely for the sake of looking better in selfies. In this same article I read from CNN, they also talked about this, an actual clinical term called Snapchat dysmorphia. It's an actual clinical term that has arisen in like the medical ranks. Basically, it's this. When you are on social media, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, they, they have these filters that you can put your photo through to make yourself look better. And when you begin to see a better looking version of yourself staring back at you, you start to think that that's what you should always look like. And it actually creates a condition that medical scientists have called Snapchat dysmorphia. It changes our self-image in the way that we see our own body and our own outward appearance. Because here's the thing, look, I'm not picking on social media. Social media, there's plenty to like about it. There's plenty that's good, but there's also plenty of dangerous stuff about it. There's plenty of things that can lead us astray. And social media has actually made us obsessed with outward appearance. It's made us obsessed with outward appearance. Uh, the way that they've done that is through telling stories, ironically. In 2016, Instagram copied Snapchat and came out with the stories element on their homepage, where basically you can like take a picture, a video, or something, and tell the story of what's going on in your day, and then that story disappears in 24 hours, okay? Since Instagram introduced the stories element of their social media platform, they have gained over 600 million new users in less than three years. And 400 million users on Instagram claim that they use Instagram stories on a daily basis. 400 million people use it every single day. So you see what I'm saying here? This platform that's kind of made us obsessed with outward appearance, it's driving that Obsession through stories. Do you see how we are shaped by stories? Like the word itself is Instagram stories <laughs> because they know that that is what pulls us in. And again, I'm not bashing social media. I'm not telling you to delete your Instagram accounts. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying you need to be aware. You need to be sober minded, as 1 Peter talks about, because if Satan is a lion that's roaming around looking to devour us, then social media is the savanna. 
It is where he is most at home <laughs> because he can pull us in any direction he wants just about. And you need to be sober-minded and be aware of that because outward appearance is not everything. Your image, and guys, look, I, I know that even being here, I bet at some point this week, every single one of you have looked at somebody else, a stranger, and compared yourself with them at some point this week. We all do that. We struggle with that because we're so image-obsessed. I want you to take comfort in the fact that God, your creator, does not look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. So be driven by that story, okay? Number four, fourth false narrative. Life is an individual journey. There's a guy named David Brooks who writes for the New York Times. He wrote an article back in March called Five Lies That Our Culture Is Telling Us. It's a really, really good article, and, and not, not even like a Christian article, but man, he nails some of the problems in our world. And one of the lies he talks about is this one, life is an individual journey. In other words, he's saying that the lie that our culture is telling us is that life is all about racking up experiences, not responsibilities. That life is about gaining as many cool experiences that you can, as you can, not about taking on responsibilities. That's a lie. That's a lie because what he says is studies have actually shown that the people who are most content and most fulfilled in life are the people who actually take on the responsibilities and love their community and their neighborhood really well and find themselves content where they are. That's actually like what the studies have shown. And so there is this lie that our culture is telling us that Life is all about going out there and gaining as many cool experiences as you can. And it starts kind of right now in this stage that you're in, this resume building stage, where you have to get as many cool experiences onto your resume as you can so that a college will be impressed with you, so that you can get into a good college, so that you can eventually get a good job, get a good house, get a good car, a nice family. And then you're eventually going to find yourselves working really hard at this cool, awesome job that you got so that you can make a lot of money that maybe you're not spending as much time with your community or your family as you thought you would. And so you justify this by saying, you know what, I'm just going to work really hard all the time. And maybe two or three weeks out of the year, we're going to take these really elaborate vacations because we can afford it. That's what I'm getting from all this money that I'm making. And we're going to go on these great vacations. They're going to be awesome. We're going to make memories. And that's how I'm going to connect with my family or my friends or my community. And then I'm going to get back to the grindstone. And this cycle repeats itself for year after year. 30, 40 years go by, and you retire. And then what do you do? You seek more experiences because that's all you've ever known. And you think that life is all about chasing after these really cool moments and memories. Maybe I, maybe I just described the way your family functions. I don't know. What I'm saying is, experiences aren't bad. It's not bad to go on vacation. It's not bad to have really fun memories. It's not bad to go have these great experiences, but that is not what life is about. Life is actually more about finding contentment where you are and taking on the responsibilities that God has given to you and loving and serving those around you. That is actually the most fulfilling life. So please don't believe the lie that your culture, the universities, Maybe even your school, 
that they're throwing at you saying that you need to go out and do as many cool things as you can and don't attach yourself to anybody. Like, life is an individual journey. You don't need other people around you. You don't need to be tied down to one place here or there. You need to just go experience life. That is not what life is about. That's not really why God created you. He created you to live out this story that he is writing that involves loving other characters in your story and serving them and taking on these responsibilities he's given. Okay, let me recap real quick. The first lie that we talked about, listen to your heart. The second lie, you are your own hero. Third, outward appearance is everything. Fourth, life is an individual journey. Let's talk about the fifth one. This is the last one. And this may be one of the most dangerous that I see. The lie that the Bible is unreliable. The reason I think it's most dangerous is because I, I bet some of you may be sitting here with doubts in your head thinking like, you know, I've grown up in church. Everybody just tells me the Bible's true, but how do I really know that? There's plenty of people out there who don't believe the Bible. In fact, when you get into like universities and stuff, and maybe even in your schools right now, you're going to have people like shouting at you, like, you can't trust this book. It's not true. It's fiction. And so if you're thinking that, you may be sitting there wondering, why am I even here? This whole conference is wrapped around this book and our belief in it. So what's the point? Like, if this isn't true, then everything I'm doing right now is a waste of time. And I know that those doubts may be creeping into you right now because Satan wants you to believe that this book is unreliable. So what I want to do for these next few minutes, this may sound like a little bit of a history lesson. Please follow with me because this is actually really important. I want to give you just a, a couple tiny things that you can take away from this to, that, to know that you can trust the authenticity of the Bible. And these two things I'm going to talk about, manuscripts and eyewitnesses. Again, I know this is going to sound like a history class. Please hang in there with me. I've just got a few more minutes. What are manuscripts? Manuscripts are basically copies that, uh, that somebody would make of a, a, a work of art or a, a piece of history or a document that was written down. So when historians look at maybe say, uh, a piece of history that was written in the first century BC, they're going to say how many different manuscripts exist from that time period. In other words, how many scribes were copying this down? Because the more copies you have, the more you can compare them with each other, and the more you can like, legitimize the authenticity of that document. Let me give you a few examples of some historical documents and the number of manuscripts they have that historians look at and say, yeah, that's authentic. This uh, guy named Herodotus, Greek historian, lived in the 400s BC, has 109 existing manuscripts from that time period. Historians look at that and say, that's enough. It's, it's true. We can, we can count on it. It's reliable. Livy, Roman historian, has 150. Tacitus, a Roman historian, has 33. Pliny the Elder, a Roman historian, has 200 manuscripts. So did you hear those numbers? 109 manuscripts from that time period. 150, 33, 200. Those are enough for historians to look at it and say, that's true, it's authenticated, it's reliable, we can believe in it. You want to know how many copies of existing manuscripts we have of the New Testament? Over 18,000. You want to know how many we have of the Old Testament? Over 42,000 scrolls and codices and manuscripts. And historians still look at the Bible and say, it's unreliable. You can't trust it. 
there's a guy named John Warwick Montgomery who says, to be skeptical of the scriptures is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the scriptures. Here's what he's saying. If you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust anything that was written in that time period because nothing has been as well documented as the Bible. And it's not even close. That's manuscripts. The second thing, the last thing, eyewitness accounts. One eyewitness in court can completely uh, sway the jury's opinion on something. All it takes is one eyewitness who said that they saw something. There are 18 different sources from the first century, historical sources who claim that Jesus was a real person. Twelve of those 18 sources aren't even Christian sources. Two-thirds of them are non-Christian. But they all claim that Jesus was a real person. For comparison's sake, we have more evidence that Jesus existed than we do that Julius Caesar existed. Okay? Jesus was a real person. That's the first thing you need to know. He was a real person who existed in actual space-time. For the eyewitnesses, who are the first people that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead? The women. That's a big deal because in the first century Palestine, women's testimony in court was inadmissible because women were considered second-class citizens. So if you're the disciples and you're making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, you're not going to say that the first people who saw him were women. The only reason they would say that is because it's true. It's because that's the way it actually happened. Even the enemies of Jesus couldn't really explain who he was. There were first century Jewish historians who claimed that Jesus was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. Now you would think if they're trying to disprove Jesus, they would just say, oh yeah, all those miracles that they talk about, those didn't happen. The disciples are lying about it. They couldn't say that because there were too many eyewitnesses who saw those miracles. So what they had to say instead was, yeah, he was a sorcerer and he led Israel astray. If the enemies of Jesus, if the enemies of Christianity needed to call Jesus a sorcerer, then there's reason to believe that something miraculous actually happened. And lastly, let's talk about the number of eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at at one time. 500 people at one time after he had risen from the dead. And then Paul continues and says, most of them are still alive today. In other words, uh, you can go ask them. I'm, I'm listening to a podcast right now about a, a murder that took place in Mississippi back in the 90s. And this investigative journalist is going through and she's trying to uncover some of the things that may not have been true about the case. And what she's doing is she's going to the eyewitnesses, to the people who are actually alive during that time. I mean, this is like 20 years later and she's going back and saying, tell me what happened on that day. Tell me what you saw. Tell me what you heard. And she's gathering all this eyewitness account Because eyewitness testimony matters. It's important. 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And Paul says, you can go talk to them. They're still alive. Most of them are. Paul is giving you historical reason to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. This is not some fantasy that we have to stretch our imaginations to believe in. It happened. And here's the point. I'm going to give you a logical line of reasoning. Jesus was a real person. 
Jesus believed in the Scriptures. 500 people saw Jesus after He rose from the dead, which means that Jesus is who He says He was. And if He is who He says He was, then you can believe the Scriptures. That was not some fantastical idea I was pulling out of fairyland. All right, That was a logical line of reasoning. Jesus was real. He believed the Scriptures. 500 people saw Him rise from the dead. He is who He says He was. Therefore, you can believe the Word of God because Jesus believed it. He is the Son of God. I don't know of any more logical argument that you can make about any work of literature that's ever been written. This is history. It really happened. But more than that, I'm going to close with this. More than that, it's a story. It's God's story. It's what we talked about yesterday. I want to read you something from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Jesus has been teaching the Scriptures to people around Him. And Matthew says in verse 28, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Who were scribes? Scribes were people that copied down what other people said. A scribe copies down what what somebody else says or writes. But Matthew says that Jesus spoke with authority, not as a scribe. What's the root word of authority? I bet you can figure this out. Author. Matthew is saying, get this, Jesus taught the scriptures not as a scribe, but as the author of the scriptures. He taught them as if he were the one who wrote them. And he did, because it's his story. And tomorrow, we're going to talk about the author's story and why that matters so much to see it from that perspective. Let's pray. God, you are so good to give us your word in this story, but also to give us like actual historical evidence to help us believe that. But even then, Lord, we come with doubts and we come with fears and Satan is constantly attacking that belief. And so we have to have faith that can only come from you because we walk by faith, not by sight. So would you give us that faith to believe in the scriptures and to trust what so many other people have said before us, that you are who you said you were and the scriptures are trustworthy. And so I pray that because of that, we would actually learn to trust the scriptures and not trust the false narratives of this world or the false stories and lies that Satan is telling us. Help us to trust in you, to follow and believe in you. And would you help us to see that you are the author of this story and our story and the author of all creation. Would you help us to come prepared for that on our last day at our elective? Please help us to enjoy your creation right now enjoy and enjoy each other. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, guys.